Good to be with you this Wednesday night. And uh, just want to reflect again, both brothers mentioned in uh, their prayers, the, the hymn we started with, but it, it kind of sets the stage for what we've been thinking about, being saved from uselessness. In other words, being useful for God, being a testimony of service and light for God. And in that second line, Forbid it, Lord, that I should both save in the cross of Christ my God all the vain things that charm me most. I sacrifice them to His blood. If you sang that, did you really mean that? Because that is that is a surrender verse, isn't it? To sacrifice all the things that the vain things that charm us uh, to His blood. That's what we're seeing. The Lord challenge the people of Israel as they're about to enter the highlight of their testimony for Him up to this point in their history. They're on the eastern banks of the Jordan River about to cross into the promised land. They've had opportunity to be of testimony to the Lord in the wilderness. They had opportunity to be of testimony to the Lord in Egypt before they came out with that miraculous deliverance and the Red Sea crossing. And then in the wilderness, remember, they came up to Kadesh Barnea and they decided that they would send spies in. I won't take the time tonight uh, to look at those verses in numbers, but we could look at those verses and see that that it, it appears from what we see in the text that that was the idea of the people, a recommendation of theirs. Moses agrees to it, but then the Lord says, go ahead and do it. He permits it. And, and we saw then that, uh, of course, there was that rebellion. And instead of two years into the promised land, there would be 38 more years where that entire generation would lose the privilege. And Moses says, I myself missed out on this because of you. But we want to come back then to Joshua chapter 1. And let me just rehearse um, for us the things that we've looked at so far, just to kind of refresh our minds of what we've seen so far in Joshua chapter 1. And I suggested four areas and encourage you to, if you're taking notes, to write them down if you would like something to think about with the way of making ourselves or making, putting ourselves in a position to be useful to the Lord. You know, being in the way the Lord led me. Remember in Genesis 24? The servant of Abraham, being in the way, the Lord led me. So the Lord leads, but we've got to be in the way, too. We've got to be in an, in an attitude of submission and willingness. And uh, that's part of how, why, how the Lord made us, didn't he? That, that we are people that responsible, moral agents. We make decisions. So we saw then participation, promises, personal calling, and provision of the word is the four things we've seen already and. The two messages on the Lord's Day. Participation. Moses is dead, Joshua, the Lord says to him. Now you go and cross over. 
So there's that passing of the torch, that passing of the baton to the next generation. And, and he's encouraging Joshua, don't be content to just rest in past victories, because he's had many past victories in the wilderness, right? He said, don't be content with that. Participate in what I want to do with you and through you toward the future. And that's the same for you and me. He invites us still. You're breathing and you're alive and you're born again. He invites us to participate with him in the work that he's doing in this world. It's a it's a marvelous, awesome privilege, isn't it? To work together. He calls us workers together with God to work together with God in doing his work, not ours, his work of saving more souls for Christ. Exalting the name of Christ. Exalting the name of our Father God. Participation. And we link that to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. That, that great verse where Paul challenges Timothy to do the same thing. To, to pass on what I taught you, he says. You pass on to faithful men. That they may be able to teach others also. And then, secondly, the promises... The Lord gives several of them. We looked at those already in verses 2 through 5. Every place the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you. And we link that to Ephesians chapter 1. The spiritual blessings in heavenly places God has already given to us in Christ. The moment we were saved, the moment we were born again, we were given every spiritual blessing. And what it says? But then we don't appropriate them right away. It takes time, doesn't it? It takes a lifetime, really, for us to appropriate. In other words, make our own, apply to our lives, live out the blessings. But the blessings were given the moment we were saved, you see. And then thirdly, we looked at the personal calling, verses 5 and 6. And we link this, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Walk worthy of the calling by which you have been called. Joshua has been set apart. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. He has a personal, individual calling of God. And you do too. If you are born again here tonight, you have an individual, personal, unique calling to service for the Lord that no one else can do. Unique to your own temperament, your own personality, your own talents, your own spiritual gift or gifts, plural, if you have more than one. And in an area of sphere of influence, Paul talks about that. You've studied 2 Corinthians 10 recently, right? That's where Paul uses that, that sphere of influence. I love that. Sphere of service. Each one has a sphere, an area of influence and service where God has put us that is unique to each one of us. It's special, isn't it? And, and then, uh, and of course, the inheritance that's talked about in verse 6 and how Joshua would be involved in the allotment of the inheritance and what a picture that is of our Lord Jesus, uh, Psalm 68, quoted there in Ephesians 4, giving spiritual gifts for what purpose? For the edification 
of the body that it may come to the full stature, the maturity of Christ, right? And that's a continuous work, isn't it? And each one of us has a part in that, see? Very valuable. And then the provision of his word in verses 7 through 9 of chapter 1. So important. The word of God. We come to the Christian life, as we suggested, with, with baggage from our old life that of wrong thinking. So our minds need to be transformed by the renewing of the word. They need to be cleansed by the washing of the water of the word. Our outlook on the world, our outlook on ourselves, our outlook on God, our outlook on the church, our outlook on the future, all of it was skewed by sin. And it needs to be transformed, renewed. And that's done. The primary agent, vehicle, that God uses for that is the Word of God. So if we don't spend time in the Word of God, we are not going to be cleansed. And therefore, we will not be useful. So it's not a matter of of some sort of tradition or, you know, having a quiet time and going through some sort of ritual. And it's not, as he says, it's a meditation on the law day and night. So it's not just, I've been around in people's homes sometimes where they'll have, you know, the family altar, they used to call it, and things like that. And they'll read the Bible for five minutes and then rush off to work and rush off to school and forget everything... Ten minutes later, they couldn't tell you what they just read. It was just a formal ritual. Well, that's not what he's talking about here. If that's what you got, it isn't doing much. And it's really dishonoring to the Lord, isn't it? And it's dishonoring to his word to treat it like that. The power of God unto salvation. The power of God unto cleansing, unto usefulness, unto training up those great Four areas that 2 Timothy 3.16 talks about. For doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And, and I've taught this before and I try to apply it in my own life. Every time we come to the Word of God, we ought to have one or all of those four things happening as we interact with the Word of God. Amen? That's what he's saying in 2 Timothy 3.16. That the child of God might be thoroughly equipped... For every good work. What is he saying? The word of God is what equips us, see? And that's so important. And that leads us to what I want to look at tonight. And, and that's, that's two dangers that he talks about here that are, I think, really valuable for us, too. The danger of pragmatism and the danger of presumption. And those we... We get out of where we just we just kind of got a little bit into chapter two, the sending of the spies in chapter two. Now, I want you to follow along with me, because when we look at the word of God, you know, we, we talked about the various steps of inductive Bible study some years ago. I guess that was in 04. It's been quite a few years ago. And many of you still have some of the booklets that we handed out. But remember, the first step was what? Observation. And what I'm inviting us to do tonight is just, just observe what the text says. Just follow along with me. But I want you to look in your Bibles and follow along with me. Don't just listen to me. I want you to see in the Word of God what we are observing. Okay? Because there is a rich lesson here if we will follow what the text is saying, I think. 
Now notice the, the phrase that uh, the Lord spoke to Joshua. You see that in verse 1 of chapter 1? It came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua. Everyone see that? Look in your Bibles. The Lord spoke to Joshua. Now, that isn't just a little phrase to fill up space. When you track how God uses that throughout the Old Testament, especially in the historical books, but even in the Pentateuch, it has meaning because there are times when the Lord speaks to a servant of the Lord about something, and there are times when he doesn't, but the servant of the Lord goes on and acts anyway. Okay? Just like we do sometimes. And, and just to show how significant this is, this idea of pragmatism. You know what pragmatism means, right? If it works, do it. Right? If it works, do it. Well, we were flooded with that in the 1980s and 90s with the church growth movement, which has, you know, kind of moved in a different direction in the 2000s. But, but the whole idea that we were being, was communicated to us was, hey, if, if what is done in the business world works in the church, if it fills the pews, do it. Never mind if some of the things that are brought in are wrong and worldly. If it works, do it, see. And you know how it is in, in the Christian life. We are people that, well, we all struggle with living by faith, don't we? We want to know what's ahead before we make our decision in, in the life of faith, in our walk with God, in the life of service. We would like to have spies go on ahead and tell us what's ahead before we get there, and then we'll decide if we really want to follow the Lord there, right? Well, that's not how the Christian life works. That's not how service for the Lord works, is it? He, he wants us to trust Him day by day. Walk by faith and not by sight. And trust Him to lead. And we don't know where it's going to go. That's part of the adventure of the life of faith for me anyway. And I hope it is for you. I hope that, that we can all get a hold of the, the excitement it is. But you have to understand that God is good. That, he, that he's, he's worthy of our trust. That we don't have to, to worry. You know, I can remember as a young Christian that, well, if I really just surrender to the Lord and let Him guide me, what if He calls me to a life of singleness and then calls me to live in some area where I don't want to live and calls me to do something I don't want to do? How, how can I? But that's not a very kind way to think about God, is it? See, God knows us better than we know ourselves. And we have an old nature that is very critical of God, suspicious of Him, doesn't want to trust Him, thinks we can make decisions better apart from Him, and if we need His blessing, then we'll stop and ask in prayer for blessing, but we will run this, Lord, and then you bless it when we ask for it, right? Bless this mess, you know. And that's what it often becomes, doesn't it? 
if we don't wait on the Lord. So that's where this, this sin of both pragmatism, where we get ahead of the Lord and make decisions by things that work instead of by what the Word of God tells us to do, waiting on the Lord for guidance. And then presumption is to move ahead without asking counsel from God first. That's where prayer comes in, right? To presume upon God's kindness and grace is to say, well, Lord, I'm going to do this and hopefully good will come of it. And so I want that to be in the back of our minds as we follow this this story of the sending of the spies in chapter 2. So the Lord speaks to Joshua. Now, there are seven times in the first five chapters, as I see it, where there's a reference to the Lord spoke. Okay? So the Lord spoke to Joshua in chapter 1, verse 1. Everyone sees that, right? And then you see the next time I see it is in chapter 3, verse 7. The Lord said to Joshua. You see that there? And then down in chapter 4, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, everyone see that? And then down in chapter 4, verse 10, the Lord commanded Joshua to speak to the people. Right? Everybody tracking with me so far? And then chapter 5, verse 2, at that time the Lord said to Joshua, you get the feeling that the Lord is wanting to communicate with Joshua and run this program a little bit? And then in chapter 5, verse 9, we see that the Lord said to Joshua. And we Hopefully we'll get to some of these commandments uh, before we get finished with our sessions on Sunday. But, but this is where he's going. And then in chapter 5, verse 13 to 15, the Lord speaks to Joshua and says that, as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. <laughs> In other words, Joshua, I am very able to command this army of people and take them into the promised land. You are not the general. I am. Jesus says to him, because this is the pre-incarnate Christ here. He receives worship. There's a statement in, uh, you're in 2 Corinthians, I think, chapter 12. But in 2 Corinthians, chapter 13, there's a statement that I think is really special where Paul says, for though, speaking of our Lord Jesus, we're just singing of the wondrous cross, right? Verse 4, for though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. He was crucified in weakness, beloved, but he's not crucified in weakness anymore. And we sometimes think, I was speaking to some people in the highly Catholic area where they wear a lot of these crucifixes and, and with, the, with the person still on the cross. And, and you say, well, what's, what's the problem with that? Well, he's not on that cross anymore. If you want to wear a cross without anyone on it, maybe that's okay. But even then, it's a symbol of torture. It, our Lord was suffered enormously there. It's not something that we should take lightly. It's something we should hold in, in high reverence. But, 
But that's between you and the Lord. But a crucifix is, is him still there. And, and I was brought up with that kind of thinking. And I still thought he was in weakness because I, all I saw was when we had a 15-foot one right there in the front of the, the church building, him on the cross. See, well, Paul says he's not on the cross anymore, beloved. He's exalted in heaven. He lives by the power of God. Don't mess with him is what he's telling the Corinthians. Don't examine yourselves and see if you be in the faith, he'll go on to say in the next verse. Don't mess around with him because he will discipline. He is carrying the sword for a purpose, see? He's not a little baby in a manger. I mean, the world wants to think of him of a little, as a little baby in the manger because you can push a little baby around and tell him what to do, see? It's a, it's a mindset. He is exalted. Look at it in Revelation chapter 1. His eyes are flames of fire. Looking at what? The churches and the individual Christians in every church. That's powerful, isn't it? And he's examining the hearts. And he's looking through all the fakeness. And he wants to burn away that fakeness, right? Through disciplines, through trials, through adversity. That's what he wants to do. That's what he is doing. Okay, so coming back to Joshua... So you see, as I see it, seven references to the Lord spoke to Joshua. Then you get to chapter 2, verse 1. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly and saying, Go, does it say in your Bible that the Lord spoke to Joshua? Does anyone have it in their Bible? I don't think it will because it's not in any of the manuscripts. He said, well, it's understood. It says in chapter 1, verse 1, the Lord spoke to Joshua. No, in chapter 1, verse 1, there were certain things he spoke to Joshua. And then, of course, the two and a half tribes come and speak to him in verses 12 to 18. All that you say we will do. And then Joshua makes a decision, doesn't he? And sends two spies into Jericho. So all we did was point that out. And one of the things that, that we think that is important to realize, part of what is pragmatism, do you agree with me that the end doesn't justify the means? Do you agree with that? The end, the, the goal, isn't justified by using any means to get there. Because someone says, well, Rahab the harlot was saved. So, I mean, if we have to sin to go in there and get Rahab saved, well, the goal was getting her saved, so it was a good thing. Is that a biblical mindset? What does Paul say in Romans 3.8? God forbid, right? That we might produce good by sinning? See, that, that, that isn't the way God works. We're thankful Rahab is saved, but God can save Rahab without the two spies going there, can't he? He can. You didn't say yes, but he can. And, and you say, well, what's, the, what's the, the danger here? Well, the danger is that in our day, in the 21st century, we could justify sin by rationalizing it. And saying, well, we did this. Uh, we knew it was bad, but we thought good would come of it. <laughs> and, and I want to say to you here tonight again, like I said Sunday night, that that, that is not 
good in the eyes of God. God may choose to bless it and use it like he does in chapter 2. That's just his grace, isn't it? And he doesn't comment on it in chapter 2, but he does comment on it in chapter 9 and verse 14 when he laments that in the story of the Gibeonites, what happened? They didn't ask counsel of God. They made their decision about the Gibeonites, made a covenant with them, which Deuteronomy forbade them to do, just as the spies made a covenant with Rahab, people of the land, Canaanites. They were forbidden to do that in Deuteronomy. So they violate the word of God to produce good in their minds, right? And that's what pragmatism teaches. And it's all around us in the church growth movement, in many areas of evangelism. Does, is it okay to use any method, any means to save souls, according to some in evangelism? No, it isn't. We want to do it God's way, don't we? We want to wait on God. That's where prayer comes in. We want to use methods that He approves of. And He tells us. He gives us examples. Paul was an enormous missionary and personal worker. We have all kinds of examples of how He did it. Right? Okay, so that's one of the things. The second thing means that Living by faith, this is another aspect of pragmatism. I, I'm, I'm putting it under that. Living by faith means we can trust God even when we see impossible odds. Isn't that true? They look at Jericho. They see this massive walled city. They know that the people in the city are well better armed than they are. That they're warriors, and Israel's had a little practice with war, with Sihon and Og and the Amalekites and the king of Arad, but very little in the wilderness. And they're coming in with not a lot of training. And, and so they're cognizant of their weakness, and they're cognizant of the odds are against them. By whose standards? By human standards, right? By human standards, the odds were way against them. And so it could be, I'm just suggesting, it could be that then Joshua said, well, we know we sent spies into the land under Moses, and it, it was catastrophic. <laughs> it caused rebellion in the camp. It caused an enormous discipline. Many, many lives of people died and weren't able to enter the promised land. But I'm going to try this anyway because Moses did it, and so I'm going to try it too. But I'm not going to send 12 of them. I'm going to send two of them because we had two spies that gave a good report before and, we, and ten of them that didn't. So maybe we're safer with two. I'm just suggesting that may have been his thinking. We don't know what his thinking. The text doesn't tell us. But we do know from the text, you'll have to agree with me, it does not say the Lord spoke to Joshua and commanded him to do this. Are you with me on that? Does it say that? It doesn't, right? It doesn't say that. And then when we see the conquering of Jericho, when we get to chapter 6, which we haven't gotten to yet, is there any information 
from the spies that helps the people of God conquer that city? Did they get, bring any kind of information about the size of the gates, how tall, well, how many people there were? They were inside the city, so they could have seen the armament and what kind of weapons they have, but there's no record of that in the text of the Scripture, is there? And what does God have them do to get a victory over Jericho? Do they fire any weapons? They march around the city seven times, right? Blowing trumpets. And what is God trying to teach them? That I can do this if you will let me. If you will trust me. If you will walk step by step in your life, a life of faith, trusting me. And sometimes that works. I've done that in personal work one time, just as sometimes it can be something that's helpful. I was working with a particular individual that had an addiction problem and he just couldn't get a victory. And I said, well, let's pretend this couch is Jericho and let's march around this city seven times. If that visual will help you understand that God has the power to give you a victory over any kind of addiction in your life, then do it, I would say. Because it's a visual reminder of what God taught the people of Israel here. I mean, it's, it's, to me, it's so, so clear that he's telling them, I don't need your military strategy. I need your yieldedness. I need your willingness to do it my way according to my instructions which are in my word. That's very hard for 21st century technological man with all his intelligence and all his education and all his abilities. And it's so easy to look out in the world system and see what they do and say, well, if it works for them, it must work in the church. Is Christ no longer the head of his church? He was the commander of the army here. He's the head of his church now, isn't he? He's fully able to do that. Now, one thing I want to point out that we can be thankful for with regard to, and I'll wrap it up quickly here, we can still be thankful for the testimony that Rahab does give us. Because this is the only record we have of a Gentile person in the time of the exodus from Egypt. Now we have it. We know what what we have in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers from God's standpoint, and a little bit from the people's standpoint, right? Their response, and it was an up and down response. You know, you work through Numbers, it's a tough book because they made a lot of mistakes. And God worked through with them in each mistake, just like He does with us. He's patient, long-suffering. He wants us to succeed in the mission He's given to us, right? He wants us to be victorious, to be super overcomers. So Rahab points out, first of all, the terror of you, that's in chapter 2, in verse 9, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and all the heavens of the land are faint-hearted because of you. But is that the first time this is mentioned in 
the first few books of the Bible? No, actually, Exodus 15, 14 and 15, the song of Moses, as it's called, right after the crossing of the Red Sea, the Lord promised them that they, these very words. So what did they really need to do? Did they really need the testimony of Rahab to tell them that? Or did they need to reflect on what God had already told them 40 years earlier when they crossed the Red Sea? You see, the Word of God was sufficient for them. But the Lord allowed this because He understood, I believe, the weakness of their faith. And He'll do that for us too. And He'll help us when we make bad judgment calls. In the way of service, right? He'll help us work through them and remedy them. And sometimes there's fallout. Sometimes there are things we don't get corrected after that, but we leave that with the Lord. But we, like Brother said, we want to keep a short account. We want to confess those things, admit and acknowledge when we get ahead of Him. Lord, I got ahead of you and I messed it up bad. Please forgive me and help me backtrack and get where you want me to be and wait on you to direct me, see? I don't need my ingenuity. I need you. I don't need my knowledge. I need your word, see? You, you see what we're, we're talking about? Dependence. A whole attitude of prayerful dependence and willingness to trust Him even when the odds are against us from the world's viewpoint because greater is He that is in us than He that is in the world. Do you believe that? Our actions sometimes don't show that. We have to admit. But I hope we will more consistently believe that. Secondly, Rahab reminds them of the Red Sea deliverance. We've heard, verse 10, how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea when you came over. See, the Gentiles heard about it. We wouldn't know that from the first five books of the Bible, would we? That message got to them. And it was a testimony of God's greatness. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og. And then we heard our hearts melted because of this. Because of you, for the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. See? When God acted through His people and they obeyed Him, like when they crossed the Red Sea, they obeyed Him. But He had to command them to cross, right? And they cross, and, and it's a testimony to the world of what? The greatness of God's people? Well, a little bit. They were frightened. They were terrorized by them. But the greatness of God, of Jehovah. Which do you want by your testimony and service? When you get to the end of your life and you look back, what do you want to be seen about your life of service? That, that you made a lot of great decisions without God? And maybe, maybe you had a lot of things that followed out from that that you think are blessings. You may find out at the judgment seat of Christ there's just a small pile after the wood, hay, and stubble's all been burned off, right? Or would you, do you want a testimony? I know what I've made my decision for myself. I wanted all the glory to go to Christ. That's what we sang, right? He died for me. He died for you. And... And that kind of love demands a response. Brother said it. It says it in the hymn. My life, my all, hopefully, 
But you have to be brought to that place. And don't say that of you if it's not true yet. Don't be a, a hypocrite. Be honest before God. He gives you time. He gives all of us time. But he wants us to come to the place of recognizing that he is worthy of all of our trust. Amen? And when we see that, we will be in the place of usefulness, fit for the Master's use. So, Father, we thank You, O Lord, that Your Word sometimes reveals things in our hearts that we don't want to see. We see our weakness. We see our temptation to rationalize. We see our temptation to act presumptuously, presuming upon your grace and goodness and kindness. And we admit that, Lord, and confess it. And each one of us should do that individually. I trust we will tonight, tomorrow, and the near days to come, because that's the essence of what brings revival. It starts in the hearts of the people of God. And the mask comes off and the hypocrisy is set aside and we get real with you. So we thank you for these stories in Joshua, Lord. Help us to learn and apply what you have for us. Give us a heart that loves you and wants to serve you because we love you. Because you first loved us. Be with us as we travel home in safety. Give us a good night of rest before the day begins. We ask in the Lord Jesus' precious name. Amen.